Hello, this is William Chamberlain, and today we have a special edition of the Popmatic Podcast. We have an interview with the director Richard C. Serafian. Mr. Serafian has directed Vanishing Point, The Man Who Loved Cat Dancing, and Man in the Wilderness. Man in the Wilderness will be playing at the Downtown Public Library on Saturday, July 9th at 2 p.m. in the Main Library Auditorium. The library is located on 615 Church Street. Now, on to the interview. You stated to me earlier in a conversation that Man in the Wilderness is your favorite movie you've directed. Could you discuss why that is? It's one of them, I think, but it falls into a genre of, I think, it's my favorite, and yes, one of my favorites. My favorite is the first one that I made, which was made for no money and got me going in the business, and it's called Andy. It's about a retarded 40-year-old that reached a point where his parents can no longer take care of him, and he's given a little bit of money to buy a new suit, but he's to be committed the next day, and it's an odyssey of him wandering around, presumably to make human contact, and eventually the parents have to make a decision whether they can go through with committing him. So it was a movie that I made for hardly any money for Universal. So that, I guess, your firstborn is one of my favorites. Man in the Wilderness, of course, ranks way up there, along with Vanishing Point. While watching Man in the Wilderness, it struck me that this must have been an extremely difficult movie to make. Where did you make the movie, and what problems did you have dragging the boat across land? Well, uh, I made it in Spain, in various locations. One of them, one of them was Soria, which was near Madrid. And I worked in the bitter cold. I had almost frostbitten feet, and and uh, but we the problem of pulling that boat across the country was uh, executed by by special effects man, and and he was able to construct the ship, and again the Italian crew were able to cast the mules so that the ones in the back were the largest, and 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 construct the rigging. Uh, so we were able, of course, find terrain where. It, we could navigate it. But Spain was chosen because after a search, I needed an area that would represent the Yellowstone, the great Northwest. Uh, Sidney Pollock, the director of Jeremiah Johnson, came over to uh, take a look at Spain, see if he could make his movie, which was, as you know, about a, a mountain man that didn't find what he wanted and went back. Well, I looked a little further than him. I got out of the car and was able to scout locations. And where I placed my camera, if I moved it left or right, I would run into a wall or something, you know, to show there was civilization nearby. However, you know, it just took a little while to scout locations. And the special effects man by the name of Parker uh, was brilliant in that I I challenged him at one time as to what was the coefficient of safety, in other words, in terms of its its, its stability on that and how much yaw, you know, in terms of left and right, and it made him very upset. The day before we started to shoot the boat, it caught on fire, and a lot of styrofoam was burning, and the, the, a lot of the British crew just stood around and watched him while in the midst of flames, Parker put out the flames, and was able to restore enough of it so that we were able to continue with the shooting the next day. But it was just a, he, but he was one of the best special effects men in the business. 
And, and of course, the Spanish crew was amazing in their ability to cast the mules and the rigging that it was necessary uh, so that the ones in the back could look over the heads of the ones in front and so on. It was quite a challenge. But Spain, was it difficult? Yes, because of, because of weather problems, and I could get into detail on that, and uh, walking deep in the mud and in the mud when we got to Soria, where you could hardly pull your feet out of the mud. And, and it, but it was the perfect place. And there was a time when, because of weather problems, I was asked to move the location back to Madrid. I begged them. And so a 13-day sequence, which was designed for the final, final battle and the, uh, and the dialogue, of course. But I was told to remove. I begged the producer to please I would get it done, and so I was able to accomplish what I needed for the story uh, in five days as opposed to 12 days, which I initially thought was necessary. But, but the challenge of Spain was, of course, weather, uh, the weather and, and finding locations where I could uh, shoot you know, the, the scenes, the wilderness, and duplicate the Yellowstone. And I succeeded, whereas Jeremiah Johnson, the uh, art director and the director, uh, went back and shot it, you know, here in, in I don't know where they shot it. But as far as I'm concerned, I made a classier film. Also in this film, you cast John Houston as Captain Fillmore Henry. Of course, Mr. Houston is one of the great filmmakers, and I was just wondering, was there ever an intimidation level with working with Mr. Houston? Constantly. Not that he intimidated me. He used to just sit there in his chair and read books. He was an omnivorous reader and smoked his cigars, but we became very close. But we never had any kind of... Uh, well, there was a couple of moments where I should have listened to his advice. And, of course, I was awed because he's my hero today. He would be, of all the directors that I've met, that I would say that he was pro profoundly one of the best in that in terms of his accomplishments and as, his, and as an adventurer and as a filmmaker. I mean, he was by far a unique individual and who took a, a guess, I guess, took a liking to me. We played backgammon at night, and he drank his Stolitzmeyer, and I had my wine. When I first met him, he was in Madrid, and uh, I was, sat there. I can imitate his voice, and, and the first thing he said to me, he says, All right, Richard, I like the script. Would you like me to shave my head? You know, which was certainly, you know, unexpected. I said, no, John, not at all. He had just been fired on a picture that he was going to do with George C. Scott because the studio sided with the star rather than, uh, you know, this, you know, the, uh, this, this, uh, the filmmaker, John Houston, and he did it for relatively. Little money, whatever he was making with a little for him was about thirty grand, thirty thousand. He bet on the fight, and we all got up one night and we sat with the old man as he uh, we watched him lose thirty thousand dollars. But uh, he was he was he was a gambler. He was a filmmaker, raconteur, amazing raconteur. I stayed with him for a period of time in Ireland at his manor house. I, I certainly you know, think that he, by hands down, he is probably the most interesting and uh, director that, 
for me in the business, was in the business. I was going to ask you about Jerry Fisher. Since this is a visual movie, I was just wanting to know what the collaboration was like between Jerry Fisher and yourself. Well, what you, collaboration is that we're kind of joined at the hip. A great cameraman, of course, that he was. And he and I would scout the locations and talk about the texture of the film. And so we've had quite a, I can't remember the exact conversations, but it was an alliance and he was able to get into the essence of it and, to, and get into the molecule of nature. And at one time he had his operator on his knees for five hours waiting for a lunar eclipse, which I wanted to shoot. And it's in the movie. And this is all done in snow and in the cold. But he was a, he was a, a hard task master who certainly he was very proud of the movie and he put it up as a, as examples of exterior photography and in one or two shots as you might notice the feeling is of Wedgwood and with with the help of special effects and the mist and scenes with Indians and the distance and the haunting quality and the the nature of the film which is which is the man's redemption as he sees life, he sees death, and he gets into nature. And, of course, as you know, as the picture uh, says, that he finds redemption and his peace with God in the end. So it, for me, the movie had a lot to say allegorically and in, and in many other levels. And I think of, of its genre, uh, nothing's been made like it, and I'm proud to say that. Being getting into the period and, and its spiritual essence was where, what we all went for. Maybe not directly in terms of dialogue. I don't talk like this to anybody except you right now. But I think, you know, you point your camera in the direction and, and create the mood and the lighting and set it up, and eventually you glue it together, and I ended up with a film that I'm quite proud of. And I can say, yes, it's probably one of the films that I'm most proud of. In the audio commentary for Vanishing Point, you stated that Andrew Saris, the film critic, referred to you as the misunderstood auteur. How would you describe your directing career? I think that he's right. I think of what he, that I was probably the most misunderstood of the auteurs uh, because my audience um, uh, it was not the Hollywood executives. The appreciation and the acclaim, if any, came from Italy and France. And that's in Italy. They thought of me as the American Deceitia. In France, I was compared to Lelouch. And, and I guess that's because, I don't know, I mean, so I was proud. To, when I was in Europe, I had a lot of welcome. I didn't have the same amount of welcome here amongst the people that would loan you the use of their money to make movies. And admittedly, I made some wrong choices. I had five kids, and so John Houston told me, and that's probably in the commentary, he says, now, he said, now, Richard, of all the films I've ever done, I've always tried, always done my best. However, there have been times on occasion when my reason for doing a film hasn't been absolutely pure. And it's in those instances I could see the whole thing crumble to my very eyes and there's not a thing you can do about it, not a thing. So my advice or my suggestion to you would be get your family set up and then get on with the job. And of course he was right, but getting my family set up, to, you know, was not that easy because I never was after the money. I, you know, I w was more involved with the, the freedom that I earned to make choices and to, to get into the subject matter that I think appealed to me more, where I could return more, you know, to the story. 
So I would say my career has been, I've been pretty damn lucky. You know, I'm right, right now going to be 81 years old, and, and I'm in the grandstands watching my children, you know, follow at various levels of movie making. And it's, it's fun for me to, to see the, them, them gradually accomplish, you know, whatever they're after. And, of course, like any father, I think they want their children to be better than they are. And, and several of mine, I can say, are and will uh, will be heard from. But I, I'm fortunate that I was able to become part of the industry, and I miss it. Uh, I lost my wife two weeks ago. And so between my family and the movie industry, it was sort of a menage a trois. And I, so now I'm uh, sitting here, here alone, not feeling sorry for myself, but saying, yes, it's been quite an adventure uh, for me and maybe go to various parts of the world. And uh, I think I might have told you that I did spend a little time in Tennessee. I got an A in uh, entomology, <laughs> and uh, that's another story. But I was at Tusculum College in Greenville. It was great for me because being from New York, it was, uh, you know, I was able to meet people in the heartland. So I, I drew from them, uh, and, and that, you know, we're all, you know, that the, these uh, people who pioneered this country and who would probably come out of the house with shovels to fight off the enemy. And so it was good and a, a learning experience for me, not in the classroom, but in human contact. And that's sort of been my quest ever since I was a kid. I was more interested, I'm more of a humanist than I am an intellectual director. But, you know, I hit a few of the black keys, and, and Man in the Wilderness, of course, is one of them. And I don't know if... Uh, I'll ever get a chance to make another Western. I haven't got an idea. I want to do one in Arkansas because there's a little mining town here where an old codger has protects it, will fire his shotgun off anybody that comes close. So there's a lot to be said allegorically in doing uh, Westerns. And I did quite a few of them in my early career from uh, Lawman and Sugarfoot and Cheyenne, Bronco, the Wild Wild West. The man who loved cat dancing, and uh, I don't know a damn thing about horses, but, you know, the, the, the experts who did sort of pulled me through. You know, you were talking about Tennessee, and you also made a film in Knoxville called Lolly Madonna XXX, which was based on the first novel by Sue Grafton, and she co-wrote the screenplay for it, too. Uh, could you discuss the working relationship between Miss Grafton and yourself? She wanted to get me fired. I mean, I had no relationship with her. Uh, it was her first go. It was her first screenplay, if anything. And uh, between her and her boyfriend, uh, they did not agree with the location and wanted to get me fired. Well, MGM told them, if anybody's going to get fired, you are, Sue. So they stayed away. And I made what I thought was a, a little classic movie, and it was my comment on the Vietnam War, brother fighting brother, you know, the feuding families, with a great cast, you know, who we all hung out, it was a family, and of course with Robert Ryan and uh, Rod Steiger, and the location which we, which we found outside of Knoxville, where the old walls were still up and the grave markers were still there, and I remember one in particular, here lies Martha Willick, born whatever the date was, and she done what she could, and it was quite touching. But uh, yeah, no, the location and the people, and uh, again was another experience that 
you know, we, uh, directors basically alone, but it's nice to be surrounded by, by, by kind people. And, of course, the location was all in one place. I tell you, it was one moment when I needed to use a, a battered-up mailbox. And my prop man came back with one because he found it, and, uh, you know, hanging on his one nail with a lot of bullet holes in it, I think. And we used it. And all of a sudden, when look around, and here's a guy coming with a shotgun so mad. And he was just, I mean, on fire. How dare we touch his property? How dare we take that? You know, even though I thought it was a piece of worthless junk, he was right. It was his. And, and he should have been told. And so what we've kind of calmed him down and was able to give it back to him and with maybe a few extra dollars for a beer. But, but working there was, uh, again, but it was hot. Uh, I was uh, it's probably really hot. I was really hot. I guess, again, another situation where it made you feel under intense heat. And so Tennessee was good to me. And it was a good choice in spite of Sue Crafton and her boyfriend, Rodney. I forget Rodney was his name. But we finally made up, and they brought me a, a bottle of champagne and some strawberries at a cocktail party we had later. But I felt that it was my, you see, making a statement, you know, in Hollywood, is, you, you got to be careful, because if it can get too didactic, you lose your audience. And that was never, a, so the idea, it was always occurred to me that the way to do it, you know, is to sort of slip under the tent while the devil had his back turned. So with Vanishing Point and with Lolly Madonna, I, I think that I was able to make a statement. The problem came later with the head of the studio who took out a lot of the grace notes and some of the connective tissue and some of the nuance ruthlessly. And my original cut was mangled and was, well, you know, it's like taking a couple of notes out of the, out of the Star Spangled Banner or a star out of the American flag. Uh, you just, you know, I guess film directors are fighting that all the time, is the interference by people who aren't artists, you know, who are the businessmen who care about the length rather than the the quality. But I mean, I don't know now, but I think it's even gotten worse, according to my children, that the, the films are made more by committee and by the, what, the, what they end up with is, a, is a, well, like a compromise. And so it's fighting that compromise and finding the freedom. I don't, I don't, you don't get it easy. You get it by with succeeding from time to time. And, and, you know, you're as good as your last movie sometimes. And that sometimes you're as good as your last movie. And, and you got so, uh, a lot of times you're directing in fear. I would say, especially in my embryo years as a director, because you've got to bring it in for the dollar and within the parameters of the time that you're allowed. And if you don't, well, you don't work. And so, uh, so uh, the trick is uh, learn your craft. It's not a trick. If you learn your craft and know when to say print it and, and if you can know how to cast a movie, I would say that 80% of the, of the genius of any director is, is casting. Find the right people. And then you can fold your arms in many instances and find cameramen like Jerry Fisher dedicated, uh, you know, to their, their craft who will work as your side and collaborate. So much of the collaboration between myself and the artists that I work with is a silent kind of understanding of what you want. And with Man in the Wilderness, 
I would do certain things that I asked Richard to do, like as far as being in the icy water, I threw myself in to show him that it was okay. I, my heart stopped. It was really icy, and I had nothing on but a light windbreaker. In another instance, I ate a crayfish. I didn't eat it. Uh, it was a live crayfish. He said, what are I going to do? I said, you just do what this, do this. And he wouldn't do it, and I just took that crayfish and bit into it and chewed it a few times and spit it out. He stared at me until we got him, uh, uh, we got him, uh, we, you know, it was a question of cutting where we could, live crayfish and what he bit into was a duplication, I think, in some other material. And as far as eating raw liver, I did for him to show him that it was, it was doable with, with Hollywood blood on it. And he said he wouldn't do it. Yeah, I said, well, well how, how, when would, how would you do it? He said, well, cook it. So we cooked it, and he still wouldn't do it. I said, Richard, you know, i got to get the scene, uh, you know, with the wolves uh, attacking the buffalo. And he said, well, I said, when, how, can you, how can I get you to bite into it and chew it? He says, how about filet? So we got a piece of meat. I don't know, it might have been a flank steak or something. And we cooked that, and he was a and he chewed it on. But taming Richard, a volatile personality, you know, I had a drinking problem, but we agreed that if he didn't drink, I wouldn't drink, and we shook hands on that, and he kept his word, and was a great, great, great to collaborate with as, as, as playing the character of Zach Bass. Probably your most popular movie is Vanishing Point, and of course it, that has a true cult following, and I, Vanishing Point is a time and place movie, and it seems to me that this movie could have only been made in the 1970s. Would you agree with that statement? Yeah, it was about the 70s, and I was saying goodbye to the 60s, I thought. And so, it, yes, it was the beginning of the 70s in road movies, although the one before that would have been an easy rider. So I would agree with you. I don't know if it could be made another time. But that's your question. I guess you can do anything at another time if you're true to the period. And that takes a little bit of research and, and the people that uh, will get into that with you in terms of the... But Vanishing Point for me was a terrific opportunity to talk about freedom. And spiritual at the spiritual center for me was the idea that this is not the end of life, that it's an endless road and uh, that life does go on. So when Richard Zanuck asked me only one question, he said, now, Richard, does Kowalski die at the end? I said, depends on your view, sir. I'm, I'm Catholic. And he says, no. At the end of the movie, I, I, I shot a different ending than the one that's in there now where, where Super Soul celebrates his demise. So, and when he looked at it, he said, no, no, Richard, he's got to die. He's die. But I think the music said it for me. And uh, I could go on in terms of the my view, which was personal, very personal. I don't think anybody knew what I was doing. The studio didn't know what I was doing. They made it for petty cash for them. Uh, it was a, a chance for Richard Zanuck to pay back Chrysler for the use of their cars all these years because the first thing he said, well, come on, show me. And he went out to the back lot. And he said, can you use any one of these? And I said, yeah. So I ended up with the Dodge Challenger. But I, the challenge for me was to, uh, uh, many, many levels. 
is to create speed and make it a visual experience as well as be personally a spiritual experience in terms of the the uh, going back I'll use the guy to phobias that you know you take two ribbons and you take a piece of ribbon and you glue it together and twist it you know that you'll travel that that elliptical band and on both sides and he was a uh, I think he was a German a German scientist and so the idea of, of phobias I used in terms of taking it of, of the curved line the lines that what took us into the desert and the symbol of the uh, of uh, that I was able to scar the desert turf from a helicopter, you know, to show that he coming back and and uh, right over the same thing, you know, the the intersection of the two the two lines. So vanishing point was the, and then as a situation where I was able to slip under the tent while the devil had his back turned. And I think no matter how much they cut out of the film, because a lot of stuff, some stuff was cut out because Zanuck was fired before I could uh, argue for, for uh, keeping the film intact. The film survived the editing that went on afterwards by a guy by the name of Elmo Williams came in, who uh, was the editor on, on uh, was it, with Gary Cooper. Uh, High Noon. High Noon, yeah. And so uh, he then was briefly the head of the studio after Zanuck was fired. Uh, Richard Zanuck being the head of the studio who was, uh, uh, was fired. And so he came in and made certain cuts. But High Noon, he, he was, ha and also I think uh, the 6th of June, D-Day the 6th of June, he did a war picture for Zanuck and, and was liked by the, by the father, Richard Zanuck's father. But the fact is that all the love that went into it and the, the dedication and devotion of my crew, and plus the, the people that I met along the way, along those highways, I went 10,000 miles. I don't know, I'm exaggerating. I don't know how many miles I drove to find that bit of road where I could execute the action and was, again, able to, to photograph the, the vast, amazing space that we have in this country and the and the and the Grant Wood faces, you know, that still live there. And again, those are the ones that I say, you know, that is the heart and soul of America is holding on, if they can, to their property and, you know, maybe at the end of their life. But their seeds, their roots are still there. And so it gives me a lot of hope that this country will always survive because its, it's children are still here, the, from the, the pioneers that, you know, that helped settle it. Both, a lot of directors, they never get out of the car. They look for locations by just looking through the window. But then you got to get out and then take the side roads. So, so much of Vanishing was accomplished by me getting out and finding the dumps and the, 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 uh, the cars that are being drawn back into, into the ground, the old cars and the faces and the people. And Cisco, Nevada is where I shot quite a bit of the movie. The, the, the beginning and the ending, of course. The uh, the cowboys, that's, some of them that remained, that were still there in this, what would be, what was a dying town, because it was a cattle town at one time, Cisco, and the uh, super high, right, was built about 10 miles away, and so that that was the end of Cisco. I love the story, it was when I went into a bar when I was on location, it was a long bar, Western Bar, 
and there was only one person there, and there was a, a sort of a, a showcase where, and in the showcase uh, was a, a Hershey chocolate bar, and I said, can I buy that? He said, can't sell it to you, but I said, why not? He said, well, it's my last one. So, <laughs> so what you what I got out of that was, you know, was a sort of, of course, they were a little bit, you know, here Hollywood people. Hollywood people, you know, coming and invading his turf, and so uh, and the independence, the independence and the humor, you know, that you find, you know, with these people. So, so for me, all of these films were, where I was on location in Tennessee and uh, Arkansas, uh, came became a learning experience as a, sort of a, a kid growing up in the ghetto in New York you know, to get out into the country. Because at one time, when I first got going, I got a job doing documentaries, and I was working for the Missouri Farmers Association. And meeting these farmers and hunkering down in the fields with them, talking about, here's a guy from New York, trying to tell them how to increase their yields. That was, a, you know, they, they were respectful. But again, uh, you know, I learned... And in one instance, I was looking for a hanging tree. A guy came off his tractor, came out. So I, I said, I'm looking for a hanging tree. And he never, never blinked, nothing. He said, come with me. He got in our car and went to his home and got into his pickup, took me up to a hill. On top of it was about eight of them, perfect hanging trees. And he says, pretty, ain't it? He said, I like to come up here and think. So th these are the poetic people people whose blood is in the land. And uh, that was all, in, in retrospect, thinking back in such an enriching experience as I, as I sort of stumbled through the, uh, through the Hollywood scene. Well, I would like to ask you about a television show you directed for the, you directed one of the more famous Twilight Zones called Living Doll. And while you directed that episode, did you realize at the time it was ghostwritten by Jerry Saul for Charles Beaumont, or do you have any other memories of that show? Oh, I just got a, had an opportunity. This was just towards the end of my career directing television, and oh, got the script. And the my main contribution, I didn't realize who was a ghostwriter or any, and I never did meet Rod Sterling. I, I guess I, I got lucky. I got a good script. And I, but my main contribution is that I had a relationship with Telly Savalas, and so he was perfect in the in the role. And I, I'm also proud to say he turned out to be one of the top five or ten, and and preceded other uh, horror films involving dolls like Chucky. But the producer I heard later said I thought well even after I didn't did. Uh, Vanishing Point, Man in the Wilderness, said I was just a lucky director. I was, he didn't recognize the fact that maybe, well, it was. You know, with 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 Twilight Zone, it was all set. You know, it was episodic, and the crew was all tuned in. And so when you when a guy comes on, it's like the new kid on a lot, the new boy on the block. There was a kind of an edge, you know, with the crew and I. They sort of automatically did their job. So I did the one and got on and got off and then went to Europe and started directing movies. 
you were talking about your television work. You've directed so many television shows, I Spy, Gunsmoke, Batman, Ben Casey, Bonanza, and Lawman. Do you have a favorite that you worked on and why? Well, I think my favorites were, uh, well, you know, like you could say, if you had a lot of children, you know, you love all of them. The first one I did, of course, I was, was it really a test one, and that was a, a Bronco. And uh, working with Ty Harden, Ty Harden was an actor, you know, who could not give you a simple reading. For for example, if you took simple like like Mister, you reach for your gun and I blow your hand off and bury it in the post hole you just dug. Well, that would be the line. I'm trying to remember it. And so what he would do is say, Mister, if you go ahead and give me any trouble, what I'm going to have to do is get my gun and, and my holster here around my waist. And then I'm going to shoot and I'll blow your hand off. And uh, then you're going to have to bury it in that post hole you just dug nearest you. <laughs> Anyhow, uh, he would extend the moment and also take certain license. And in other words, he resisted at one moment when they said, pass the biscuits. He uh, challenged me and said, well, that's not Texas talk. I said, what do you say? He said, well, would you pass me them there cookies, ma'am? I don't know whether it was right or wrong, but I was a neophyte director, and so somehow or other I worked around it. As far as favorites, I think the association with Bill Cosby and, and Robert Culp was fun because we traveled together, we partied together, we, and it was all improvisation. I Spy was all improvisation. And so many of the scenes they did were not in the script. But Bill Cosby was fun to be around. And so, and going on locations in uh, Mexico and other places were, 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 was enriching. This Raymond Massey, when I did a Kill there, I said to Mr. Massey, after one scene, which was an exposition scene, I think the actor was, he was playing with Richard Chamberlain. I said, can you play the scene twice as fast? Well, sure enough, here he was. I don't know how old he was at the time in his 70s, and he just... It made the moment. It made the moment as he, he is with his skill and his professionalism, Ray Massey, did the moment at the end of which, you know, he, his comment was, you know, to uh, kill there, he says, you know, the problem with you is you eat too fast. And so uh, when you can do things and you get lucky, and one scene with Peter Falk, uh, I had to get a, a kid with tears crying. He couldn't do it. And after I spoke to him and I explained that, that he knew what was in the script, what was required, then this was a business. As I chastised him, his lowered gore began to tremble. I said, all right, now get in there. All right, action. I said, now, laugh. And I said, laugh. He looked at me. And sure enough, I insisted that he laughed. And, and by asking him to laugh, broke down all the blocks that he had, and he started crying and couldn't stop. And uh, I remember this actress, uh, Joanna Barnes, coming up to me afterwards and saying, you are, you know, a sadistic son of a bitch. But anyhow, I got the moment. And sometimes you do strange things and do behavior. Uh, you get into behavior that is, a bit strange. Anybody watching what I'm doing from the sidelines, you know, would have to think of me as being a little bit odd. But all the Westerns, 
that I did, Sugarfoot, Cheyenne, Bronco, the Wild Wild West, that again was a challenge uh, because they had fired the director and I came in and with no prep, was able to do the pilot and then got on the air. Of course, Twilight Zone, I got lucky with a good script and it ended up being one of the top five, I think. Maybe uh, they tell me as being a, a Twilight classic. But television was a, a laboratory for me where I was able to work and make mistakes, meet people, meet actors on, of all various talents and, and learn. It was a learning ground for me. And then when I first had to sign, I was asked to sign a contract at Warner Brothers after my first attempt at directing there. I went to Floyd Crosby, who I made friends with in the Floyd said, they want to sign me to a seven-year contract, Floyd, and he said, do it. You can work every day, and you'll make, you can make mistakes, and you won't be punished for it. And so that's what happened up until the time that I did my next feature, which was Run Wild, One Free in England, about an autistic child on the Boers in the springtime of his life. I was selected by the Queen as Princess Anne's first royal premiere. And that was a challenge, and uh, I'm very fond of the results. Here I was asked, worked with very little money, but had the pleasure and the honor of working with John Mills, Sir Bernard Miles, who was knighted, both were knighted later, but the picture was selected by uh, the Queen as Princess Anne's royal premiere. I couldn't be there during the showing when the Queen looked at it, I love to tell the story of how the queen was enchanted and charmed by my wife, Joan, and invited her to dinner where Joan very graciously, of course, turned her down. And she says, I'm sorry, ma'am, but I got a previous engagement. I told them to tell the story that way. She said, no, no, I had to get back to the kids and the babysitter. So, yeah, but working with John Mills and uh, Mary Mills, his wife, Sir Bernard Miles, and the rest of the cast, again, was an enriching experience for me and another stepping stone towards whatever I was reaching for, I guess, as as Robert Aldrich said during a a moment when he was dying, when someone leaned over and said, Robert, what can I do for you? Is there anything I can do for you? Open up his eyes and said, good script. I've always been in search of that good script. So I've got a couple I've written myself right now, and I can produce them. Whether or not I can direct them, I don't know. I think I think I could do more from a chair than most directors can do standing on both feet. I would like to thank Richard C. Serafian for granting us an interview. Remember, Man in the Wilderness will be showing Saturday, July 9th at 2 p.m. in the Main Library Auditorium. The library is located at 615 Church Street. Come and see it on our big screen, and remember, it's free.